we would be teachable, gracious God. But we must unlearn some of what passes for wisdom in our world. We would be teachable, loving God, but we must reframe the unquestioned perspectives. So grant us courage to confront the idols and deceits, and grant us wisdom to embrace your way and truth. Wisdom comes, perhaps not from being taught, but from being taught to remember. We pray to you and no other God, because you are the source of life. You are the author of all that is. You are the one who creates with joyful abundance and redeems with generous mercy. We lay our lives before you with hope sturdied by trust, inviting you to walk beside us, rearranging our lists where needed and reforming our practices where necessary. Sift away all that has silted the flow of your life through us. And wisdom comes, perhaps not only from remembering, but also from enacting. So grant us courage in our employ of your spirit in this world, that you would seek to be present in us speaks of your design for life, that we would be earthen vessels of your life proclaims our trust in your goodwill for all of life. We would be stewards true, holding in trust from you all that you give. And yet, we neither hold nor hoard, but with each day care and share. In this is your wisdom for our daily living, as we pray in the spirit of Jesus the Christ.
The witness of Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him, Jesus, and what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away.
Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's, is how the sentence reads in the King James Version. And even if people have no familiarity with the Bible, they still may know this quote. The question is, what does it mean? What is Jesus saying? And what is Jesus not saying? Jesus is in the temple again a day or two after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Since his heralded arrival into the city as people waved their palm branches, Jesus has turned over the tables in the temple. He's had his authority questioned. He's told three parables, each one turning up the heat a bit in a simmering conflict now starting to boil. And then what happens next is revealing. As those with concerns about Jesus conspire in a surprising but telling coalition. Matthew's Gospel says the Pharisees and the Herodians join forces. The Pharisees, as we know, were an influential group of religious leaders who sought to interpret Jewish faith and offer practical advice for ethical living. They have been far too easily maligned over the centuries, and that has revealed a deadly anti-Semitism too readily practiced and too much still present. That Jesus and some of the Pharisees clashed on occasion is obvious. But there were also times when they aligned. Of the Herodians, we know almost nothing. Perhaps they were a political faction whose loyalties are clearly indicated in their name. They are supporters of Herod's regime. In the Gospels telling of this confrontation in the temple, the Pharisees and the Herodians have united. To riff on an old saying, politics and religion make for strange bedfellows. And both history and current events confirm that such a marriage is ill-suited and it's death-dealing. For any kind of religious nationalism always gnashes and gnarls gospel truth for partisan causes. When religion and politics become concentric circles. The carpenters contracted to construct crosses start working double shifts. However, given that cruel certainty evidenced by Golgotha a few days later and countless other hills ever since, we nonetheless know to hear this story as something much larger than a treatise on the separation of church and state that wise but not completely settled and sometimes vexatious tension woven into the fabric of this country's founding documents. Jesus's response that day in the temple goes much deeper than constitutional conundrums important as these are. This unholy alliance 
the small group of Pharisees and Herodians approached Jesus with a wily serpent-in-the-grass angle. They open with ingratiating and insincere flattery. It's the classic, we like you, Jesus, but set up. It's meant to entrap Jesus, as Matthew's gospel forewarns us. And it's a curious question, because nowhere has Jesus said a thing about taxes. He has said very little about Caesar or Roman occupation, although he certainly felt the trampling boot of Rome's power ever ready if challenged. Should we pay taxes or not? One perspective sees paying the tax as a heretical compromise to an occupying force. The other perspective interprets the failure to pay taxes as rebellion, as sedition. If Jesus answers this yes-no question, he will lose either way. But we have come to know since we've been traveling with Jesus along the way, that he rarely answers the question he is asked. Instead, he asks his own questions. And in so doing, unmasks insincerity and reshapes the conversation into something foundational. So he asks two questions. Here's the first one. Why are you putting, to the test, you, putting me to the test, you hypocrites? which is certainly not a term of endearment on his part, but neither is it a term of definition. It simply means being two-faced. If his first question reveals their insincerity, his second question invites their consideration. Whose head is on the coin and, and whose title? Well, that answer is obvious. So now Jesus replies, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And Matthew's gospel says Jesus' answer amazed them and silenced them. Jesus does not prohibit rendering to Caesar. This, however, is not of central concern to Jesus. The question of taxes is our question, not his. We notice in responding, Jesus does not define what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. Poor old Caesar, he stamped his image on the coin, but that is not the stamp that interests Jesus. No tin-pot dictator nor even any great empire endures forever, and therefore neither has the power to lay claim on us. When Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to God, he brilliantly shifts to a much different conversation. He is inviting the listeners to ask a core question. To whom do we belong? In that temple that day and in this sanctuary this day, Jesus' question stirs to mind both the psalmist's great poetry and the Creator's great claim. Remember the psalmist? The earth is the Lord's 
and all that is therein, the world and those who live in it. Jesus takes an entrapping political inquiry and reframes it into an engaging theological question. And Psalm 24 stakes a claim. Everything that is, everything belongs to God. This world, our lives, it's all a gift. It's a gift on loan to us for our use. So with that perspective in mind, we realize that when our pronouns become singular, possessive, my, mine, we're moving away from the 24th Psalm. Jesus' response might also call to mind the story from Genesis, that we are made in God's image. It is God who has stamped us. What belongs to Caesar? What belongs to God? Jesus invites people to ponder allegiance and loyalty even as he proclaims the good news of to whom we belong and who it is who claims us. Joseph Donders poetically writes, God coined us in God's image. We are God's money. And we should be spent. Money should circulate. We should circulate. Money should go from hand to hand. We should go from hand to hand. Money is going to be worn. We should be going to be worn. We should be spent. We're coins. So let us risk being used and we will be increased and the end will be glory. If we are to embrace Donder's poem and Jesus' response, we see our lives as gifts from God, stamped by God's image to circulate in this world on behalf of the one whose image we all bear. So how do we use this powerful image in whom we are made? This is the stewardship question. For as the Genesis story reminds us, and as the psalmist implies, we are God's stewards, God's caring people of all God has made, of all that belongs to God, entrusted to us for our use. And as we think of who and whose we are, our thoughts are guided by a straightforward invitation. Stewardship. Why? How? Who? Why do we support the mission of First Christian Church of Norman? Why is this a value? Why is this meaningful? Before we answer that question as it relates to this church, we remember Jesus stands in the temple and reminds us that as children of God, we are expressions of God's presence wherever we are. And deeply implanted into how we are made is the impulse to care for one another, the encouragement to live in community, 
the yearning to align this world more closely to God's ways of justice and mercy, kindness and compassion, restoration and healing. This is foundational to how we are made and whose we are. And God's foundational claim is to be tangibly expressed anywhere and everywhere we are. The work of the church is one of those ways we can live this claim. So what do we value? What is meaningful about this body of Christ called First Christian Church of Norman? Is it beautiful music? Yes. <laughs> and a reverent spirit that raises our vision? Yes. Is it prayerful words and thoughtful faith? The kind of faith that encourages hard questions rather than settling for convenient answers? Is it a table whose spirit is ever inviting and whose leaves are ever expanding? Is it a deep and abiding concern to lift those who are struggling and to encourage those who are downhearted? A ministry expressed to our neighbors on the street and our neighbors across the globe. But why is this a value? Why is this meaningful in our lives? That's the kind of question that is never confined only in the context of the church. We ask that question of our lives as we consider the good work of so many who address issues of impoverishment, instability, endangerment. But why is that a value? Jesus reminds us, we are coined by God. We belong to God. So if we are looking for meaning to our living? Is there anything better than this? Stewardship, why? Stewardship, how? Perhaps in one sense this is a technical question. Check or cash, card or draft, Venmo or whatever else awaits the exchange of currency. It's dizzying, frankly. And it's inviting. But there's another consideration more theological than technical or mechanical. How do we decide how much and how it works in our lives? Some may know of an, of an old biblical standard of 10%, also referred to as a tithe to the church or any expression of God's work in this world. For some, that may be too much to start, but more of a goal toward which to move. For others, it's not enough, and so more is shared. At its core, the how question is an orientation question. How do we decide to share? As first fruits on the one hand, or from leftovers on the other hand? It's always a dynamic question, and it's always tied to the ongoing conversation of allegiance, priority, value. Stewardship, who? This is the question of benefit. Who benefits from our stewarding? Admittedly, perhaps this is an odd perspective, but I think God benefits. As in God's work is completed in the work we do 
as an expression of God's love. Could we think of our lives as a prayer that God offers to the world with our response, the amen, to God's prayerful creation of each one of our lives? Who benefits? Well, the world benefits as we strive to do as God has so charged us to do as stewards, to have dominion in this world, which is not to dominate, but is to use power as God uses power, which is to enliven and to encourage and to help all that is thrive and grow and become fully what God intends. Who benefits? Well, those in need, which certainly is the mother uncertain about the next meal for her child, but also our own children who are learning to sing, and beautifully, I might say, and who are learning to say the stories of our faith. Who benefits? We do. As we live out the paradoxical truth that love does not grow if hoarded, but only grows as it is given away, a gift that enhances recipient and giver alike. So confident that every single penny given to this church is accounted for and accountable to all of us. Who benefits? Everyone does. So Jesus calls us to remember who and whose we are. Stewardship. Why? How? Who? It keeps us faithfully oriented, profoundly liberated, and courageously circulating.